0: Praise the Lord. Welcome again to our Bible study series in the book of Acts. We are looking at the entire book of Acts, 28 chapters. We are presently in Acts chapter 14. And as always, and especially we may have a few new folks with us tonight, I want to mention that all of the past studies are available, both the notes and the recordings. All of these uh, sessions are recorded and kept in a, in a couple of different places where you can access them. The uh, simplest way is to go to our website, which is newlifechurch md.org. Newlifechurch md.org. If you wish to follow us live on Wednesday evenings, you can do that either by telephone or by logging onto the Internet at mixlr.com and follow the broadcast name New Life Church. And all of the recordings from previous Bible studies are also available there. So um, would strongly urge you to download the notes ahead of time because we cover quite a lot of Scripture in these studies and it helps you to concentrate rather than flipping around through your Bible trying to look up all the verses. Most of the verses that we're looking at will hopefully already be printed out in the notes, so you will have them right in front of you. Okay, here we go. Um, We are on Paul's first missionary journey, uh, already quite an exciting apostolic trip, and we ended last time with his experience in a place called Lystra, where He was stoned, possibly to death. It says they stoned him and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. Uh, Many people believe he actually died. And the disciples gathered around him, obviously to pray and to cry out to God for him. And a miracle took place. He literally got back up on his feet and went back, into the city, the same city where he had been stoned to death possibly, went right back there. Uh, I'm sure there was a little bit of, you know, I gotcha I'm back, the Lord raised me up again, you can't kill me, kind of a spirit. And then the next day uh, he and Barnabas moved on from there to a neighboring town called Derby, And we keep mentioning this over and over, it's a pattern that's becoming quite familiar now in the book of Acts, the apostles would move from place to place, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, preaching repentance and faith and forgiveness of sins, preaching Jesus Christ resurrected, and everywhere they went, revival broke out, but also revolution there was always opposition. The powers of darkness do not like the kingdom of God. They will always raise up some kind of an opposition against the light, against the truth. And these apostles, uh, they would at times flee to a neighboring city. Sometimes they would go back to that same city where they had been beaten, imprisoned, or stoned, and were going to continue to see that pattern they did not care for their own lives they were ready and willing at any moment to give up their life in the ultimate sacrifice for Jesus Christ because they understood the sacrifice Christ had already made for them and when you and I really begin to understand what Jesus purchased and secured for us on the cross through His suffering and death, through His burial, and through His resurrection, we will, like Paul, be able to say, I don't count my life dear to myself. All I want to do is finish my race, finish my assignment, complete the work that God has called me to do, and if He should require that ultimate sacrifice, it's a small thing in view of what He has already done for us, and the hope that awaits us on the other side. So, continuing on, we've come to page 157, if you're following in the notes. This is Roman numeral 6, entitled, Paul and Barnabas Return to Antioch in Syria. Now, it's a little bit confusing, because there are two different Antiochs. There's Pisidian Antioch, where they have previously visited, They started this journey from Antioch in Syria, and now they're headed back to, as it were, home base in Antioch, Syria, to complete this first mission, this first apostolic journey. But there's a little bit more to go, so starting in Acts 14, we're going to read from verse 21 to 28. Acts 14, 21-28. It says they preached the good news in that city, that's in Derby, and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra. Remember, Lystra is where Paul got stoned practically to death, if not to death. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. From Atalia, they sailed back to Antioch, that's in Syria, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles." And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So, as always, go to a new city, what do you do? You preach the good news. And so, they left Lystra, where Paul had been stoned, they go to Derby, preach the good news there, and they continue sort of reversing their direction uh, to head back to Antioch in Syria, thus paying a second visit to all of the places that they had previously been. We would call it follow-up. They're going back now to a lot of the same places, now not just for evangelistic purposes, but as it says in verse 22, to strengthen the disciples that had been raised up in those different places, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. So, the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, had borne much fruit in these different towns, but that was not good enough, that was not sufficient. And we learn an important lesson here about the gospel ministry and about the founding of churches it wasn't a one-time visit, it required going back, going back, and watering the seeds that had been sown there, and following up on these believers to teach them, strengthen them, disciple them, and encourage them. So, we find them now going back to Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch, these are all places that they've already been, and by the way, they're all places where they had already met with fierce opposition. That doesn't matter. They don't pick and choose which places they're going to visit, depending on how much trouble they met there. As I mentioned earlier, they did not care for their own lives. They only wanted to complete their assignment of testifying to the gospel of grace. And certainly, they were being led by the Spirit. They were seeking God, looking for His guidance and His counsel. And regardless of the beatings, the stonings they might have received in a certain city, if the Holy Spirit said, go back, they went back. And here, as always, we have to take a pause and just marvel at the boldness and the courage that these men possessed. Risking their lives over and over for the sake of the gospel. These things are recorded for us to encourage us, to embolden us, to strengthen us in our day. That we would not be afraid, we would not back down, even in the face of trouble or trials or opposition. Keep pressing on, keep preaching Christ to the very end. Now, as they backtracked, they weren't going by the shortest route to get back to Antioch and Syria, as I mentioned. They were very careful to go back to all of the places that they had previously visited. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul explains an important detail about the apostolic ministry. One plants Another waters, but God gives the increase. One plants, another waters, but God gives the increase. The planting is that initial pioneering evangelistic work. Watering is going back over and over and over to those same places, those same disciples, those same seeds that were sown, need to be watered in order for God to give the increase. Paul would plant, Apollos would water, but God would give the increase. But notice, God doesn't do everything. He needs a Paul, and He needs an Apollos. He needs you and me to preach the good news and to go back and water that seed once it has been sown. It says in the text here, that they encouraged and strengthened the believers. Okay? Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Well, how do we know exactly what they were doing in order to accomplish that? Well, we have one direct quote in the next sentence. And they surely did not sugarcoat their message. They made it very clear to these disciples that they were going to have trouble, just like Paul and Barnabas had had trouble. And here's how they were encouraging them. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Hmm. Doesn't sound very encouraging. You're going to go through hardships if you want to get into the kingdom of God. But, on closer examination, that is encouragement, that is strengthening, because they had already led the way, they had already shown by their example that it's worth suffering for Jesus Christ, it's worth going through hardships in this life, because we're going somewhere, we're entering the kingdom of God, we're entering the kingdom of heaven. And so, they were able to encourage the Christians in each and every town. Look, you know our persecutions, you know the troubles we faced, you're going to go through some stuff too, but keep pressing on, keep persevering, it's worth it. We're going to the kingdom of God. Their strengthening and encouraging was to remain true to the faith. Those are important words. To remain true to the faith. They didn't go back and say, "All right, look guys, now that you've accepted Jesus, it's going to be a cakewalk. There's not going to be any more trouble in your life. God's just going to rain down blessing and prosperity on you. Everybody's going to love you. You're just going to have a great life now. That's not what they were saying. They encouraged them, remain true to your faith even when it is challenged even when it goes through fiery trials and hardships. Stay true to Jesus. Stay true to the faith. This is what you're going to have to go through, but it's worth it. Now, in verse 23, we find a very interesting scripture. It says, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in each church, and with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. We saw in Acts 6 that it was the apostles who ordained or appointed the first deacons. They did that by laying hands on them and praying for them. Here, Paul and Barnabas are appointing elders in each church. We've talked about this, and it's worth re-examining. Two very important ministerial or servant leader positions that we find in the New Testament that are critical for the health, the life, and the growth of each local church are the deacons and the elders. They're mentioned quite often in the New Testament, and we're going to look at some of those references. Deacons we saw in Acts 6 are those appointed to serve. They've already demonstrated. They have a servant's heart. Literally, they were table waiters. They were errand runners. They did the the nitty-gritty footwork of the day-to-day activities in the church. A deacon, the word literally means a servant. So uh, it's not a big deal to be a deacon. Some people think, "Yo, I can wear a badge now, and they'll call me, you know, Deacon Smith, and I can boss everybody around." That's quite the opposite of the biblical view of a deacon. These were just servants that had demonstrated they had that humble spirit in their lives to serve the church. Now. Some of them, like Stephen and Philip, were advanced. They were promoted by God. As they did their service to the church, an anointing came upon them. They began to preach. God began to confirm their ministry with signs and wonders and miracles. That's great. Now we find this second position or office, that of the elder. And this is something that has become more and more important to me in recent years, especially in the last year or so as I've been studying through the book of Acts. There are a couple of things that we notice immediately. Elders are always mentioned in the plural in conjunction with each local church. Never do you find one elder running the whole church. There wasn't this one-man-show mentality that is so often the case in modern churches, and by the way, so often leads to the downfall of both that leader and that church. There's safety in numbers, and God knew that, and that's why, from the very beginning, as churches were established, and as disciples were added to those churches, not immediately, But in time, the apostles would go back, visit those churches, and begin to discern and recognize certain ones whom the Holy Spirit was calling and equipping for that office of eldership. The first mention of elders in the book of Acts is back in Acts 11.30. There were already elders in the Jerusalem church, and a financial gift was sent to those elders in Judea through Paul and Barnabas. Elders are local church ministers ordained by the apostolic ministry, which is extra local. It's outside of any particular local church or ministry. It's extremely important, the ministry of the elders. Notice carefully the words here in verse 23. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders. They didn't appoint themselves. The local church didn't appoint them. The apostles appointed them. The elders that were appointed, it says, it was in each church. Each church needed elders, not one elder, elders in the plural. And this was such an important step in the life and the growth of each church. The apostles did this with prayer and fasting, committing them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. We'll learn later on in Acts 20, when Paul addresses all of the elders in Ephesus. He reminds them that they didn't choose this office for themselves. It was the Holy Spirit that anointed them and appointed them to that office. Very important. This wasn't something that Paul and Barnabas gave to them. They recognized That the Holy Spirit was calling these men to this particular ministry, and they confirmed that by appointing or ordaining them. We might be more used to that word, ordaining the elders. By the way, just yesterday I was studying this and I came across a very interesting revelation. In normal church practice, Both deacons and elders are ordained through the laying on of hands. We certainly saw that in Acts 6. The apostles laid their hands on the seven deacons who were being ordained in Jerusalem in Acts 6. There's no mention here of hands being laid. It just says Paul and Barnabas ordained or appointed elders for them in each church. But I looked up the word in Greek and it's fascinating. The root word is the word for hands and it literally means to extend or to reach forth the hands. So literally, Paul and Barnabas reached forth hands on elders. That's what it means literally in the Greek. What that tells me is in the early church, and of course Luke writing the book of Acts would have known this, the normal practice was understood. When deacons and elders were ordained, it was through the laying on of hands by the elders, by the ministers. And so, in each church, Paul and Barnabas ordained Elders committing them to the Lord who had called them and who had appointed them to this task. Again, I don't want to keep repeating myself, but it needs repeating. Churches need elders in the plural. And we need to pray that each local church has elders, that God raises up men who meet the qualifications that are given in Scripture for being a true elder. Notice another important point here. The apostles did not appoint elders on their initial visit to these places. When they first preached the gospel and people responded to that gospel, they took water baptism, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, They were given some time. After the passage of time, the apostles came back to those same churches. By that time, there had been an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to begin to manifest those within the church who had been called and gifted by God for that ministry. Let me tell you something. Nobody dares take any of these ministerial offices upon themselves. It'll kill you. If you're not called to be an elder, it'll mess your life up. If you're not called to be a deacon, you won't be able to do it. If you're not called to be an apostle, don't dare try to be one. We don't have the ability to do these ministries. It comes as a gift of grace, and the gift always accompanies the calling. That's why Peter urges us, make your calling and election sure. For when you do that, you will not fall. Why? Because if you're sure of your calling, you're also sure of the grace God has given you to do that calling. No man takes this honor unto himself, the Bible says, but he that is called. So, as Paul and Barnabas revisit these churches, that calling is becoming evident on certain people's lives. And the process of ordaining deacons and elders, as I've already mentioned, is not so much, you know, well, we're going to call Joe here a deacon so he won't leave the church. That's ridiculous. That kind of foolishness is wrong. The ordaining of deacons and elders is recognizing God's grace in a person's life and confirming that. Usually the whole church already recognizes that this person is operating as a deacon. This person is operating as an elder. Now, it's going to be made official through the laying on of the hands of, in this case, the apostles. So, as they're going back, for a second visit to these various places, it's now time to establish these churches. Remember, one of the great ministries of the Apostle is to found churches. They're now beginning to lay a foundation in each one of these churches. Very important. Not just through teaching and doctrine, but now setting up the government of that local church. Elders care for the church. They watch over the church. They're called overseers. And many of you have already heard me say this, but we're going to look at it again. The word elder is synonymous with all of the following terms. I don't care what you hear on Christian TV or Christian radio, there's no distinction In the Word of God between any of these terms. Elder is synonymous with the following Bishop, Overseer, Shepherd, or Pastor. They're all the same animal. Elder, Bishop, Overseer, Shepherd, or Pastor. What is it? An elder is a local leader who cares for, watches over, and directs the affairs of the local church. These are not extra-local ministries. These are local overseers who take care of that local church day in and day out, week after week, often year after year, feeding the flock, teaching, preaching, establishing the disciples in that church in prayer, in sound doctrine. Let's look at a couple of scriptures to show this. Now I know in modern Christian circles uh, we like to make a distinction between well Joe's just a pastor but Bill is a bishop and Harry over here he's a regional overseer. Well, there's no such distinction in the word of God and I think you'll see that in the verses that we're going to look at here. The words are used interchangeably. I mentioned in Acts 20, Paul calls for the elders. He wants to have what I would call a pastor's meeting or a pastor's conference. So it says in verse 17 of Acts 20, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders, notice again, plural, Elders of the church. Ephesus had elders. Not just one, many of them. Elders of the church. Here's part of his message to those elders. Verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock. That's what elders do. They watch out for the church. They watch over the church. They're like... uh guardians, guards on the wall, taking care of the sheep. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Well, here we have three of the terms in our list, all used to refer to the same group of men, elders, overseers, shepherds. Shepherds are pastors. They take care of sheep. That's all they are. Overseers is the same office. That's what elders or shepherds do. So, any of these terms are applying to the same person. We sometimes make a distinction between a pastor and an elder. The Bible doesn't do that. That's what elders are. They're shepherds. They watch over the sheep in the church. And, please notice, Paul didn't make these guys elders. Barnabas didn't make them elders. The Holy Spirit made you overseers. That's why I mentioned the ordination of elders is simply confirming what the Holy Spirit has already done. Holy Spirit called them Holy Spirit, recognize and equip them. Now that grace is evident in their lives, it's time for the whole church to recognize these are your elders. In Titus 1, from verse 5, we can see that as Paul and Barnabas and other apostles ordained elders in different cities, eventually those elders were commissioned by Paul and the other apostles to appoint other elders in the different towns where they were ministering. And so, they carried on this pattern. Let's read Titus 1, verses 5-9. to Paul tells Titus, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out or set in order what was left unfinished. And, Appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. Notice that, Paul had directed him to appoint elders. Here's what an elder looks like. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer, notice, overseer, here again, is used interchangeably with elder, since an overseer, if you look up that word, it's actually the word um, bishop, since a bishop or overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain, Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. It's obvious from this passage that These are not brand new converts. These are Christians with some maturity. They've grown in the Lord. They have character. They have a testimony. Um, They have a Christian life that has been demonstrated before the church. They're self-controlled. They're self-disciplined. They're sound in the Word of God. And they've already proven that they can teach the Word of God to others we see this even more in a companion scripture found in Paul's message to Timothy. these were both his disciples or understudies and he's now training them in how to not only recognize but also to appoint ordain elders. First Timothy three. Verses 1-8, to Paul writing to Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer. The Greek word is bishop, and a number of the Bibles actually translate it so, bishop. So now we have elder, shepherd, pastor, overseer, bishop, all one and the same person. These are elders. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer or an elder, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, some similar things to what we just read in Paul's exhortation to Titus, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited, and fall under the same judgment of the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace, and into the devil's trap. And then he goes on to talk about deacons. Thus, as we shared earlier, Paul and Barnabas did not appoint elders on their first visit to these various places. They waited Gave it some time, and then when they came back for a follow up visit, by that time they were able to recognize certain ones in the church that met these qualifications. They were disciplined, they were self controlled, they weren't drunkards, they weren't greedy for money, they were raising their children. Uh, in a Christian home with proper discipline and respect. And they were not recent converts. They had had some time to grow and mature as disciples of Christ. Notice in 1 Timothy 3 verse 5 once again, this is the ministry of the elder, to take care of God's church. Literally take care of God's local church. These were the local leaders appointed for the care and growth of that local church. We, we saw in both Titus and Timothy, one of the qualifications was that they were able to teach. That's one of the aspects of pastoring or shepherding that needed to be manifest in these men, they had to be able to teach and preach the word of God to the church, and obviously they had to be living that word that they were teaching and preaching. Look also in First Timothy 5. Here we can see the same thing. First Timothy 5 17 and 18. The elders who direct the affairs of the church... Notice that. They're the directors. They're watching over, taking care of, but even beyond that, they're directing all of the affairs of the church. They're in charge of the local church. And let me pause here for a moment. Uh, some people get this wrong. The church is not a democracy. I know some churches operate that way. They take a vote and you know the majority rules. That was never God's plan. The church is a theocracy. The church is run by God. And he does it indirectly through appointed, anointed leaders. Leaders that he's called, leaders that he's anointed and equipped. He directs all of the affairs of that local church through these directors. So the elders are the directors of the church let me read this again the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor especially those whose work is preaching and teaching that's pretty clear one of their primary roles in caring for the church and helping the church to grow and directing the affairs of the church is through the word of god Preaching and teaching. Verse 18, For the scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. The worker deserves his wages. What's he saying? He's saying elders who direct the affairs of the church, especially those who are regularly preaching and teaching in that church, they should be compensated. The church should be paying them wages. The the scripture he quotes is clear. The worker deserves his wages. Now Paul, in 1 Corinthians 9, he points out, we deserve wages. We're full-time ministers. We work hard for the church, but he didn't want to use that right, and therefore he took nothing from the churches. He made tents. He had a secular job that he used, not only to pay his own bills, but even to pay for others. So, the office of an elder, pastor, bishop, shepherd, overseer, I think I've convinced you by now with these scriptures, they're all one and the same. It's a very honorable and a very important office. Paul says anyone who sets his heart on that office desires a noble task, and if they do it well, they deserve double honor. Now, it was probably this same group of people that Paul refers to in his second letter to Timothy where in 2 Timothy 2 verse 2 he tells Timothy, the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others, and trust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. As the church grows, we have to be raising up others who do the same jobs we do, and if it's teaching and preaching, we should be raising up others who do the same, so eventually they can take over our job. Some people are frightened by that, but really, the the most blessed thing in the church is to raise up people who replace you. They take over your job. They're doing everything you once did, and they're doing it better than you did. Praise God. Move on and find out what else the Lord wants you to do. May the Lord raise up elders, i.e., pastors, shepherds, bishops, overseers. They're all the same office. Very critical, essential for the life of each church. Paul and Barnabas ordained elders in each church, in each church. Notice when Paul writes to some of the churches how he addresses them. For instance, Philippians 1 and verse 1. Paul and Timothy Timothy by this time was an apostle. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Who Who were the ones directing the affairs of the Philippian church? Not Paul and Timothy. It was the overseers and deacons. Now, Paul and Timothy are overseeing the overseers and the deacons, but the overseers and the deacons are overseeing the business of the local church. And hopefully you are following along in the notes. I'm just going to skip over this very quickly. There's a whole bunch of scriptures here if you want to look them up. These various terms. The word elder in the New Testament is the Greek word, presbyteros, or presbyter, we get the word presbyterian from that, a presbyter is an elder, overseer is another Greek word, episcope, we get the word episcopal church from that word, well, again, they're the same word, so presbyters are episkopos, And episkopos are elders. And then a third word that's translated shepherds is another Greek word, poimino, which means to tend as a shepherd, to feed, or to rule. They're all used interchangeably, and they're always used in the plural. Each church needs pastors, elders, elders overseers, so that, for several reasons, they can be accountable to one to another, they can watch out for each other, they can share the load and the burden of the church, and you don't have this problem of a one-man show who gets put up on a pedestal and then like Humpty Dumpty falls and they can't put the pieces back together. We don't want that happening in churches. It's very healthy to have a plurality of leaders in each local church. It's good for the church too. We get to hear different people preach, different gifts, different styles. We're not listening to the same voice every single week. My God, how boring to listen to the same preacher 52 Sundays a year. 52 Wednesdays a year or however often you have preaching and Bible study in your church. God likes variety and He gives each church a variety of gifts, a variety of ministries so that we have a diverse diet. We're not eating the same thing week after week after week. We get variety in our diet as the shepherds feed the church. Alright, continuing on, after they preached in Pisidia, Pamphylia, Perga, the apostles went down to Atalia, and finally, they go back to home base, back to Antioch, where all this started. Remember, in Acts 13, when they started this journey, they were commissioned by the church after fasting and prayer, they laid hands on them and sent them out with their blessing, committing them to the grace of God. And now because the church sent them out, apostles are sent ones, they're now coming back to the church that sent them. And on arriving there, As was always their custom, they gathered the church together and reported to them all that God did through them on their journey. Important to note those words. They gathered the church together and reported not all that they had done, oh, listen to all the miracles we did on our trip. No they reported all that God had done through them, and how God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, we're not going to be able to complete this tonight, but let me just introduce it, and we'll pick it up here next time. This is very important, and I don't want to hurry through it. This was the end of their first journey, They're back home, they're with their church, and we would call it testimony time. They're going to now give testimonies about their mission trip. They're going to report back to the church everything that happened on their trip. And as I mentioned, they were very careful to report all that God had done. They had eyes to see the hand of God in each and every event that had taken place and therefore they came back not glorifying or exalting themselves, but giving praise and honor to God to whom it was due, recognizing he did this. This is what God did in Pamphylia. Listen to what God did in Lystra. Listen to what God did in this place. But Here's what I want to come to, and we're going to have to spend more time on this next time. Specifically, what they reported to the church was how God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. That's a big deal. We talked about that when it happened. When God first allowed Gentiles into the church... He first allowed them to be saved. That was a big deal. They didn't open that door. God did. This was a supernatural event where God, as it were, swung open the door and said, Now, Gentiles can come in right alongside Jews, be saved be baptized, be filled with the Holy Spirit as they were in the household of Cornelius and all Jew and Gentile alike can now become members of the body of Christ. God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Every word in that sentence is important and we're going to have to dissect it more next time but let me just give you the big picture. First of all, God opened the door. He's the doorkeeper. God opens and closes doors. And certainly, in God's time, at the exact moment, He decided when this door was to finally be opened for the Gentiles. It had been predicted hundreds of years earlier through the prophets. Now, it happened. God opened the door. Second point, what kind of a door is it? It's the door of faith. Faith is the way to come in. Gentiles will now be coming in the same way Jews came in to salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only door, it's the only entrance into the kingdom of God. God is that doorkeeper. He opens the door, but our response we saw is through repentance and faith. This is actually very similar to the statement made by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem after they heard the report about Peter's visit to the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius. Here's what they said, Acts 11:18. So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Sounds similar, doesn't it? God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. God has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Both of these scriptures indicate this was a sovereign act of God, had nothing to do with the Gentiles, had nothing to do with Paul or Peter or anybody else saying, you know, it's time now for us to reach out to the Gentiles. No, God opened this door. God decided when He would start granting repentance to the Gentiles so that they could be saved. This places profound emphasis and importance on what had happened way back at Pisidian Antioch where the apostles shook the dust off their feet and declared to the Jews there, okay, that's it. You've judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're now going to turn to the Gentiles. God has appointed them for life. God was opening the door of faith to the Gentiles at that very moment. It was a very big deal. It was a huge moment historically, and Paul would write much about it later on in the book of Ephesians, in the book of Romans, and other places. And we'll be looking at some of those scriptures next time. But we have to close here for tonight with this thought. As the apostles completed their first missionary journey, they came back to where they began. They returned to where they were commissioned or commended to the grace of God. They now come back to report to the church, giving testimony, giving glory to God, acknowledging all that God had done through them. No doubt, the church in Antioch had remained in prayer, perhaps even often prayer and fasting, for this apostolic mission, and Paul and Barnabas recognized that. They didn't do this by themselves, it was the grace of God, and they were also co-laboring with all of the church back in Antioch. So it was only fitting as they returned to Antioch to now give them a report of all that God had done through them. That would encourage all of those in Antioch that had been praying or fasting as they heard the outcome of their prayers they saw the marvelous fruit that had come forth from Paul and Barnabas's first apostolic mission secondly and this is where we'll pick it up next time god on this first journey had opened the door of faith to the gentiles it began with peter's visit to cornelius but the door swung wide open now through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas where they literally said now we're turning to the Gentiles this is what the Lord has commanded us I will make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth and when the Gentiles heard that they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. We're going to look more at this next time, this mystery of the tearing down of the wall between Jew and Gentile, or, in other words, the opening of the door of faith to the Gentiles. This was something God sovereignly, supernaturally did according to His own calendar, his own timetable, he decided it's now time for the Gentiles. And, a side note, which we will look at next time, the times of the Gentiles will also come to a close. Just as God opens doors, he closes them also. The door of faith for the Gentiles will soon be closing. It will take place at the time of the rapture. When Jesus takes the church, Up in the air, at the time of his return, the time of the Gentiles ends, and a whole new dispensation begins during what we understand to be the Great Tribulation. Much more about that next time. Let's close for tonight in prayer. Father, how we love your word. We love to spend time together in Your Word. We love to study Your Word. We love to be in Your presence so that the Holy Spirit can open our eyes, enlighten us, lead us, and guide us into all truth, reveal more of Jesus Christ to us. And certainly You've done that tonight as we've looked at Your Word. Father, I thank You for each and every one that has been with us in this Bible study. Bless them richly. God, continue to open their eyes, the eyes of their heart, giving them a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we might know the hope of our calling, that we might make our calling and election sure, and that, Lord, as we saw tonight, elders were raised up in each and every local church. We pray, O God, that You would appoint, anoint, and ordain elders, in each and every local church who can truly care for that church who can teach and preach rightly divide the word of truth so that that church can be built up and prepared for your soon return God we thank you for your great mercies that you opened the door of faith also for the Gentiles Salvation was first for the Jews, but you had also predicted that a time was coming when salvation would come to all the nations of the earth, even the Gentiles. We thank you for that tonight. And now, God, we commit ourselves into your hands. We commit each one to the grace of God and to the Word of God, which is able to keep us, keep us true to the faith, Keep us firm and strong, even in the midst of trials, hardships, persecution, and opposition. Keep us faithful to the very end, and we will give you the...